Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on types of the nativity, and here the guys will be back in the book of Genesis discussing types of the nativity in the life of Jacob. We did just start a new video series on our YouTube channel on a theology of music, which I have linked down there in the show notes, and we would love for you to check out that new series and subscribe to the channel. And another reminder, we are releasing Psalm Chants over on Apple Music and Spotify. We currently have Psalms 1, 2, 3, and 6 on there, and Psalm 12 will be there in the next week. And we hope that you can find this useful as a way to meditate on God's word and also learn how to sing and chant the Psalms. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing types of the nativity in the life of Jacob. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background uh, running the recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing out everything, removing all of the awkward bits so that uh, what you receive publicly is uh, doesn't include long pauses and uh, inane comments. Uh, we are recording in the first week of uh, Advent. We wish you a blessed Advent as we prepare for the celebration of the coming of the Lord and the incarnation of the Son. Uh, and uh, to celebrate Advent, we're doing a series of studies of the uh, Nativity titled Types of the Nativity. We're looking at initially at Old Testament passages that have to do with, that are birth stories, essentially, or promises of future births. There are just so many that we aren't going to be able to cover them all uh, during the course of the few weeks that we're devoting to this series. But uh, we're spending the first several weeks of this series looking at birth stories and promises of birth in the book of Genesis, and then we'll skip ahead uh, after the first few weeks and uh, start talking about the early chapters of Matthew and Luke and the birth stories that are given us in the in the gospel stories and how those are fulfilling the types of the nativity that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, last In the last two episodes, the first couple episodes of this series, we looked at Genesis 3 and the promise of the coming of the seed of the woman who was going to crush the serpent's head and who was going to have his own heel bruised. That kind of sets up the promise of the coming of a child for the rest of scripture, that's that's really the background to everything else the scripture promises about a saving child. Uh, and then we looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah and her barrenness and the Lord's gift of a miracle child to Sarah and uh, explored a little bit about how that fits into the Abraham narrative and how the, the birth of Isaac to Sarah is a, pre, a preview and a foreshadowing of the birth of Jesus to uh, the Virgin Mary. Today and, and next week, we're going to be looking at birth stories within the story of Jacob, within the life of Jacob. There are a number of them, and we'll devote uh, this episode to the birth of Jacob and Esau uh, at the beginning, of course, of the Jacob story. Uh, and then we'll look at a couple of birth stories in the midst of the Jacob story. Just to set some large context, this is a, it's commonly noted that gen, the book of Genesis is organized by statements, these are the generations of that's used 10 times in the course of the book, and it organizes the book into these sections. And each of those sections is uh, naming a, uh, most of the sections name an individual, and what is contained in the section following that introduction, that introductory statement is, uh, are the, the children or the events of that individual's life. So the, uh, uh, the generations of Terah, the Toledoth of Terah, 
uh, is the story of Abraham. Terah gives birth to Abraham, and then Abraham's life is seen as kind of the product of Terah's. It's the it, what comes from Terah. Uh, and in, when we get to uh, Abraham, we start a ser- we start a series of five Toledoth sections. Three of them are devoted to long narratives concerning major patriarchs. So we have the Toledoth of Terah, which is the story of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25. Uh, we have the Toledoth of Isaac, which is the story of Jacob from 25 to 35. And then the Toledoth of Jacob that covers the last part of the last part of the book from chapters 37 to 50. And those large sections are interspersed with a couple of shorter sections that are genealogical sections. So the Toledoth of Ishmael, the children of Ishmael, beginning in chapter 25, and then the Toledoth, the the generations of Esau in chapter 36. So you have major narrative section, then a genealogy of a more minor figure, another major narrative section, a genealogy of a more minor figure, and then a big narrative section at the end. And each of these sections begins with some kind of promise or revelation about the future of the the main character that's going to be in the following narrative. So we begin with Abraham's promise, Yahweh's promise to Abraham at the beginning of the Abraham narrative. He's calling him from Ur. He's going to a nation, uh, to a country, to a land that he's going to be given. He's promised an abundant seed. And that kicks off the story of Abraham and, and sets up the basic problems and conflicts of that story. We have the same thing at the beginning of the uh, Jacob narrative that we're going to be looking at today, where we have this revelation about the struggle between the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Esau are, are struggling with each other in the womb. And that's a preview of what's going to happen through their lives. And that struggle, brother, brother struggle is going to be the, the uh, one of the central dramas of the, of the Jacob narrative. And then when we get to the Toledoth of Jacob, which is the Joseph story, uh, he begins at the, right at the beginning, we have these dreams of Joseph, which set this trajectory for Joseph's rise to, authority and glory. And uh, again, that's that's a big part of the drama of that section. We're going to be looking at specifically at the section concerning uh, Jacob in chapters 25 to 35. That's both this week and next week, we'll be looking at that section. But I think it's it's worth noting that the, the life of Jacob really does continue past uh, chapter 35 that we'll be looking at next, next time. Uh, Jacob is still alive right at the end of the book of Genesis. So even the section that's mainly concerned with Joseph and his brothers, uh, Jacob is still the key figure. So the life of Jacob really spans about half of the book of Genesis. He's born right in the middle of the book in chapter 25, uh, and then he dies uh, right toward the end of the book in chapter 49. So that uh, that is divided into two parts because Jacob is the major character at the beginning in that first part, and then Joseph takes over the major as the major character. Uh, after chapter 37, but these are two parts of the same large, uh, same large story. And when we look at the the story of Jacob, strictly speaking, the chapters 25 to 35, uh, as I said, there's uh, birth stories, miracle birth stories that are, uh, that are at key points there. We're going to be looking at the first of those, which is the miracle birth of Jacob and Esau. And again, uh, just to get the, the discussion started, we have a parallel here, I think, with what happens with uh, Abraham, Hagar, and Sarah. Abraham gives birth to two sons. One child is, is as Paul says in Galatians, a child of the flesh, a uh, child born by natural means, uh, Abraham fathering a son by Hagar. And then you have a miracle son who's, who, whom Paul characterizes as a child of the spirit, a son of the spirit. 
that's born miraculously from the aging dead womb, the barren womb of Sarah. And I think we have something parallel to that when we have one mother in the Jacob birth story instead of two mothers, but we have two sons and they have the same similar kind of role, thematic role and theological role that we saw with uh, Ishmael and, and Isaac. Just looking back at the start of chapter 25 here, and it's only, a, a, I guess, a minor or subtle point, but the genealogy of Abraham, which is given, has a particular interest in second sons. So uh, Abraham marries Keturah in verse one, and then we get a list of uh, her six um, sons. Um, the second is Jokshan, and then in verse three, in the next verse, it's Jokshan, the second son, that scripture sort of drills down into and tells us that he fathered two sons. And then of those two sons, Sheba and Dedan, it's again the second one that the Bible drills down into. And um, it, it seems like it's just subtly foreshadowing uh, a lot of what's to come. And it's interesting, the second son. Right. That's a that's a recurring theme, of course, in Genesis. It's uh it's the younger who takes precedence over the elder. Uh, that's happened already in the course of the book of Genesis. I mean, Cain and Abel are the original of that, but that uh, goes on here with, uh, with Ishmael and Isaac. It's going on with Jacob and Esau. Joseph is not the oldest of his brothers, but he's going to take preeminence. Uh, Judah is going to take a kind of preeminence, and he's the fourth-born son of Leah. So that we have that. We have the, not necessarily the second son, but a younger son that's uh, definitely being focused on. Hey, hey, James, is that also the case with Genesis 36 and Esau's um, generations? Because there's there are some that will structure this passage, the Jacob narrative, as a chiasm with the with, that begins with the generations of Ishmael in 25:12 and ends with the uh, generations of descendants of Esau, and the center being somewhere in chapter 28, when um, God appears to Jacob at Bethel. I'm just wondering um, if there's any similarities between the genealogies there, if they do indeed bound this narrative. Oh, I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to look into that. I don't know if I end. Hmm. Okay. It would be interesting either way, I think, because if, if you have, the replacement theme going on in uh, in certain families and not in others, then you're you're having a certain kind of uh, you're having a certain kind of narrative that's characterizing the the stories of the patriarchs that may not appear in the again the lesser secondary characters. Mm-hmm. It's also worth thinking about the ways in which these other characters provide foils for um, the principal characters in sometimes arriving at the destiny before. Um, the principal characters do. It seems like the people of God are slow off the blocks. So um, in the end of chapter 22, Milka has born children to Nahor, it's told to Abraham, and there are 12 children if we include the children by um, the concubine as well. And in the same case with Ishmael, there are 12 princes that arise from Ishmael, but now we just have two, two kids in the case of Isaac. Right. It's, it's two children and it's two children that are born after a, a period of uh, barrenness. The little narrative about the birth of uh, Jacob and Esau is uh, framed by references to Isaac's age. He's 40 years old when he takes Rebecca as his wife. 
and then he's 60 when the, then when the twins are born. So there's a 20-year period when they aren't having any children. And it, it struck me, I, I, uh, Gordon Wena makes the point about the, the, the chronology here. Um, Abraham is alive uh, to see the, the birth of his grandsons. And yet, uh, so he's, he's waited his whole life to have his son, finally has his son. And then his son is 40 before he takes a wife. And then there's another 20 years before he sees a third generation. So you think about the faith of Abraham extending over his entire life, but then there's, there's just another, you know, another, uh, another uh, 60 year extension of his, uh, of the need for his faith in God, God's promise. Well, if you make it to 175, Peter, you'll see a fair few generations born. <laughs> well, I'm shooting for <laughs> I think that uh, speaking of Abraham and his, uh, Abraham's role, he's, he's in the background, of course, when, once we get to the Isaac story. But verse 19, which begins the generations of Isaac, foregrounds Abraham in, a, in kind of an unusual way. And we have the, the records of the, these are the generations. This is the Toledoth of Isaac, Abraham's son. And then it repeats Abraham fathered Isaac, um, which is bringing Abraham's role in this to prominence in a way that uh, I don't think the other Toledoth introductions do that. Mm. You know, Isaac, it's Isaac's story, as it were, but uh, Abraham is is uh, put right next to him. Right. And something else that does, Peter, is, is uh, it kind of backgrounds this against Abraham's death. Um, as you say, it's, it's kind of out of sequence, but the fact that in the narrative we have him uh, we have him breathing his last and, and dying before the, the rest unfolds kind of has that um, has that effect. And I think it's also interesting as the, just in terms of the larger structure of Genesis, the rhythm of the Toledoth statements leads us to expect a section that is titled the Toledoth of Abraham, but that does not exist. There's a, there's a Toledoth of Terah, which is the Abraham narrative. And then there's the Toledoth of Ishmael, Abraham's son and the Toledoth of Isaac, another son of, uh, another son of Abraham, but uh, Abraham's Toledoth, which, which would be the a story focusing exclusively or primarily on Isaac, uh, doesn't exist, and the that absence I think is a significant a significant thing in the structure of Genesis because we have this rhythm that we're expecting something to happen, and then it goes out of rhythm at that point, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing that it has something to more to do with uh, the character of Isaac than it has to do with uh, anything about. Abraham, uh, Isaac, Isaac is uh, uh, Isaac doesn't receive his own e- uh, exclusive portion of the book. In verse twenty-one, it says that Isaac prayed to Yahweh for his wife because she was barren. It strikes me that we don't have a record of the author of Genesis saying that Abraham ever prayed for his wife. I don't know whether that's significant or not, but um, it's interesting to me. Um, unless I'm mistaken, unless someone knows of place. I think that's right. But the, the place where Abraham prays for barren women is uh, with uh, Abimelech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes. uh, he prays for the barren women of Abimelech's house. And uh, because he's a prophet, the Lord says mm-hmm. uh, uh, Abimelech should get him to do that. And that's just before Sarah conceives and has Isaac. Yes. So uh, there is a, there's a connection, but it's looser. You're right. It's, there's no explicit statement about Abraham praying praying for Sarah in the way that uh, Isaac does for Rebecca. I think, I guess, think given the parallel with uh, 
Abraham's prayer. Abraham's prayer is a prayer for barren women to open barren wombs. And in that context, as we talked about in our series on uh, on prophets, uh, that's the first reference to anyone in the Bible as a prophet. Mm-hmm. And it's a prophet functioning as an, one who intercedes. And um, I'm, I, I suspect we should think of Isaac playing a similar role here. He has access to God. God listens to him. So when he prays, the Lord answers and opens uh, opens Rebecca's womb. I wonder what you guys made of the descriptions of Abraham and Ishmael's death. Um, it's said of both of them, like the last one is in verse 17, he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And both of those sound like slightly unusual death formulas in the Old Testament to me. I, I don't know what you guys, guys made of them. I, I wonder if this I, this notion of being gathered to your people is kind of highlighting the way in which these people are going to become kind of just part of cumulative bodies of, of people which are built up or, or something. Are you saying, James, that's the only place where uh, that it, that phrase is used in 25.8, uh, it was gathered to his people, or are there other places? I don't know. It struck me as unusual. I, I didn't search it, but... It is quite a common expression. Um, oh, okay. find it at various other points in Genesis. Um, you have, for instance, um, at the very end of, in chapter 49... Jacob breathes his last and is gathered to his people um, and speaks about that in advance. And then you have um, several other references in places like Numbers, Aaron is gathered to his people. Okay. Huh. Yeah, and I think it is interesting to look at different, different characterizations of death because death is not, uh, you don't have that kind of phrasing used when, uh, somebody dies on the battlefield, for example, or some, somebody dies in distress. Uh, John Levinson argues that uh, uh, Sheol is uh, commonly associated. I don't think he says it's exclusively associated with uh, with violent or unexpected death, but he says it's commonly associated with that. And you have different kind of language to describe the, the kind of peaceful death of uh, in old age after a long and fruitful life. They're gathered to their people, but somebody who is dies on a battlefield or dies of disease prematurely—that's that's a kind that's a being uh, plunging into Sheol, the place of death. So I think that those differences of description I think are interesting. And what, what was your thought, James? That uh, you have a a gathering of the dead. There's a kind of community of the dead that uh, they're being incorporated into. Is that is that your idea? Maybe. I mean, I, in a sense, I was surprised about it in. Abraham's case, because, I mean, I guess we don't know too much about the, the state of worship of, of Abraham's fathers, you know, and, and so his his people is a, I don't know, slightly unusual reference or more unusual than it would be if, say, I don't know, a king is buried with his fathers or something, because we, we know more about them. So, yeah, I was just raising it, really. It, it looks like um, that the word is generally used for um, flocks of sheep gathering together flocks, uh, individual sheep into flocks, or, and also gathering uh, sheaves, gathering wheat, gathering um, a harvest, so that there's a harvest idea, um, but also um, that, you know, the dead are now gathered into the Lord's flock. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting connection, Jeff. Thinking back to... Uh, 
verses 20, excuse me, 21, 22, where we were talking about uh, Isaac praying. Isaac is generally not presented as a, a, uh, an active and successful character. I mean, I think through much of the early part of the Jacob narrative, he's taking the wrong side of the struggle between the brothers. He's favoring Esau and he's taking, favoring Esau because Esau provides him with tasty food. So there's a, uh, there's a kind of Adam motif there going for the wrong food. There's a kind of motif of uh, Isaac being ruled by his belly, but here he's functioning, I think, um, implicitly as a prophet to whom the Lord listens uh, and opens, opens the womb. And then we get this, um, introduction to Rebecca's experience in her pregnancy, which the, the focus on Rebecca is interesting, I think, because uh, the Abraham birth narrative is uh, largely told from Abraham's perspective rather than Sarah's. But here it's Sarah's, uh, the struggle in Sarah's womb that provokes her question, her inquiry of the Lord. The Lord speaks to her. She's the one who takes prominence. And I th- that seems to me to fit with the way that Rebecca has been presented from the beginning of her introduction in uh, chapter 24, when uh, Abraham's servant goes to uh, find a wife for Isaac. Uh, and uh, Rebecca is the one that's, that uh, he brings home. And Rebecca is presented there as um, a woman who's ready to leave her father's house and to go to a strange country uh, and to be incorporated into this new family that is bearing this this promise. So there's a kind of Abrahamic theme in her response to the servant of Abraham. She's, she's someone willing to leave her father's house and to, to venture out in faith. Uh, and so the, her, the focus on her experience as mother here, I think is, seems to fit with that, that trajectory. So where did uh, Rebecca go to inquire of Yahweh? Verse 22. And, and why is it that Yahweh speaks to her and not to Isaac, um, and how does that how does that fit in with uh, what occurs uh, subsequently uh, afterwards in Scripture with uh, the Lord often appearing to these mothers like Hannah, or of course when we get to the New Testament, Mary, uh, Elizabeth, and Mary. I think that is is kind of what I was uh, hinting at in my discussion of Rebecca. I think that. It says something about Rebecca's stature before the Lord that she goes to inquire. I mean, usually that kind of, I think this is the first use of that term in that, in this sense in, in scripture, that she's the first one to um, inquire of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually it's, you know, you go to priests, mm-hmm. they, they test with Urim and Thummim, you go to a prophet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no indication that she has any kind of mediator here. It's possible, but the the, the way it's uh, written suggests that she has some kind of direct access. She's, I was thinking, uh, is she being presented as a kind of prophetess, hmm. uh, as Isaac is somebody who can speak to the Lord and the Lord hears and responds? Is she somebody that has this kind of access to the Lord also? And then the Lord will give her this oracle about her sons. Hmm. What would be the likely practice of the time? What What is uh, Rebecca actually doing when she goes and inquires of the Lord? I would imagine it would be inquiring of a prophet or a seer. Either way, I mean, I think Jeff's observation is, is totally right, isn't it? I mean, she, she's the main mover in, in this particular narrative. Um, Isaac isn't. And it kind of reminds me, we'll get there soon, but the birth of Samson, um, we very much have Manoah's wife as the main mover, the one to whom the Lord appears. And Manoah kind of tries to 
involve himself, um, but doesn't really succeed. You know, and the angel keeps appearing uh, to, to the woman. And it feels that that is a thrust in these in a lot of these birth narratives. Well, I wonder in all these examples, if we're not back to the basic problem with uh, Adam uh, being impotent and especially after the fall and the flesh not being able to produce uh, the promised child. And so uh, Eve becomes the mother of all living and she is going to conceive by miraculous means. Um, and she's going to, she's going to be prominent uh, Adam or the Adam like husbands are not. Um, and uh, that seems to be at least one of the reasons why uh, all these women have such prominence, because it takes us back to Genesis 3, or, it, or, it, or it, uh, it's grounded in Genesis 3. Right, and, and has a kind of uh, anticipation of, as you said, of Mary also. I mean, the, the Lord does appear to Joseph in, in Matthew, as we'll be talking about in a few weeks. Uh, but in Luke, then uh, Mary is the, the uh, Gabriel appears to Mary. Mary's Mary's the focus of attention. Joseph is much in the background. But here it's the the Lord hears Isaac. His role in her pregnancy seems to be one of praying for her, and then the Lord answers and she conceives. It doesn't say that uh, we we assume Isaac obviously Isaac goes and has sexual relations with Rebecca and she conceives because Isaac. Has uh, I mean through 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 normal sexual intercourse, but the way that it's written, the Lord is the one who is the active agent in her conception. And that same thing is going to be true when we look at uh, Rachel, uh, the next barren woman who's going to conceive when the Lord remembers her. So there's almost a uh, a hint of a it's a a preview of a future virgin birth when the Lord Himself is going to be the agent of the Spirit of the Lord is going to be the one who. Uh, incarnates the son in the womb of Mary. So I'm completely ignorant on this subject, but what are we to make about the condition within the womb of Rebecca? Um, what type of twins are these? Are they, are they sharing the same placenta? Are they in the same sack? Are they identical twins with the blood supply being cut off for Jacob? I don't, I don't know that we're getting enough information uh, about that as far as I mean, uh, identical twins, you'd expect them to be, have identical or similar features, which doesn't seem to be the case. Um, there's no Some reference. have argued that it's twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. So one would grow large and red uh, huh. because it's cutting off the blood supply for the other. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but very I, rare survival I, in those cases. I would need to consult my wife to get to, to get details about <laughs> where, where there's enough information here to, uh, to, to decide. And so the, the, the idea would be that uh, part of the struggle in a, in a sense is biological. Is that, is that what's, is that what you're suggesting? Yep. Right. And so then you, some have also argued, and I'm not sure at all about what we can learn from this, whether there is any biological basis, but the, twins one of the twins holding the other's heel whether they're in the same sack oh yeah interesting and and uh i mean it, perhaps a preview of uh esau's lust for the red stuff from his brother later on he's been trying to suck blood from his brother from from the womb on exactly <laughs> yeah interesting <laughs> uh that's yeah that's that seem I, I, again i it's uh 
I don't know that we have enough information to go with any particular thing there, but that's an interesting uh, line of inquiry. I think one of, one of the things that's curious to me here is the when we're th- looking at these as types of the nati- types of the nativity, which are previews of the future birth of the Messiah to the Virgin Mary. Um, but in, in this case, it's not a single son that's being born. So we have this disconnect between type and fulfillment. I think we can still think about the fulfillment in terms of the type uh, for the reasons that I said at the outset, that we have uh, a kind of replay of the two sons of Abraham, uh, now both of them being born together from the same mother, but they still have this kind of the same, a similar kind of relationship or analogous kind of relationship where the elder is going to be subordinate to uh, the younger, where the elder uh, can be characterized as a as a child of the flesh. Ishmael, in a certain respect, I think Esau in certain respects can be characterized that way. And then you have the second child. But uh, any any thoughts on the the fact that we have uh, a miracle a miracle conception here, previewing the miracle conception of Jesus, but instead of having one child, we've got twins. Any any further thoughts on what that's what's going on there? Well. Um, this may be obvious, but there is is definitely a brother-brother uh, conflict, a clash uh, in the life of Jesus, the older brother being, of course, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews primarily, and Jesus being the younger one, um, so that this brother-brother, um, even, even the attempted fratricide um, by Esau against his brother, well, that actually happens with Jesus. So maybe the larger picture would be of Jesus, the younger brother, the miracle baby, um, being persecuted, being pursued, um, and wrestled with by the older brothers just being Israel, being the Jews. Right. I mean, an alternative, I don't know what you make of this, Jeff, but I wonder if we could compare... um, Esau, insofar as he's like connected with the Edomites, to um, Herod, who is, who is, I think, thought to descend from Idumea, which is, comes from Edom. You know, I, I don't know if that could be involved here. Yeah, surely. I think that struggle between the house of David and the house of Edom is also something that's in the background of Matthew chapter two, where you have um, Herod the Edomite trying to kill the um, son of David. But then if you go back to the story of David and you think about Hadad the Edomite, um, David and Joab had tried to kill all the, the male heirs in Edom to ensure that they'd be wiped out. And then Hadad had fled into Egypt. And so there's a very similar, um, there's a sort of twinning of Hadad wrestling against David and Herod wrestling against Christ, the son of David. Another thing I find interesting here is how there are themes recalling the story of Genesis coming up. There's the clutching of the heel. There's um, the wrestling of the enmity between the two. We might think also of the selling of the birthright that follows. There is the red stuff, the forbidden food. And immediately afterwards, we're told that um, Esau's name is Edom, which seems to be, among other things, a callback to the name of Adam. And he's deceived by the serpent-like figure. Yeah, I think I think you're right. The uh, the the Adam the the Genesis the early Genesis scenario is at at, at work here. Not just a 
the, as far as the name is concerned, it comes up with Edom, but also the word ruddy has uh, uh, that uh, Edom is Edom refers to that coloring, but it also has the same consonants. As soon as Esau comes out, he has this look of one who is of Adam or one who is of the earth. So the Adam and the Adama are are played on in that initial description. We could also think of Cain and Abel, that Cain is the man of the earth, Abel is the keeper of flocks, and there seems to be a similar twinning in this pair. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, as far as the typology is concerned, the stuff that Jeff was saying, I think is is uh, helpful because we have this older brother, younger brother, you have uh, the people of Israel, or Herod, I think is in, uh, definitely in, in play here, and then uh, the younger Jacob. But uh, the prophecy is that the uh, younger will pre- be preeminent over the elder. Even the name, it's a pun on the, the word for heel. So it's often understood, uh, Jacob is often understood as meaning something like heel, heel grabber. But then you also have uh, places where that verb is has to do with supplanting or overcoming. So there's a note of victory over the elder brother that's involved in this. And, and so far as the typology is concerned, you have Jesus, the younger son, uh, born into a world where his elder brothers are seeking to kill him, Herod, eventually the Jews, uh, and yet he is the true son of Jacob who is going to be preeminent over his elder brothers, and he's going to be the one who supplants them. And we should remember when we read in Genesis 25 about this initial clash, this wrestling, uh, reading that in the light of Genesis 32 later on, where uh, Jacob realizes, confesses, where God shows him that all of the wrestling throughout his entire life, he's actually been wrestling with, with El. It, it's, his uh, brother was the face of God. Um, his, his father was the face of God, so that God has been orchestrating all of this uh, so that um, in his maturity, Jacob would be named Prince of God, Israel. And that also, that's a type of what happens with Jesus as well. All of his enemies, uh, all the, the older brothers that he fights against, that he wrestles with, um, end up being part of uh, his father's plan to elevate him as prince, as king. I think to develop that point, Jeff, I'd also note the way that the story of Jacob is structured around three very similar events where there's a struggle with his brother, where there's the question of the name, the birthright, and the blessing. And these events are the key pivotal events around which other things turn. So there's this event of the birth, where there is a difference between the name, the naming of the two brothers. They, presumably Jacob and or Isaac and Rebekah, name Esau, Esau. But then Jacob is just named Jacob. And there's no, there's a less active way of naming him, as it were. It seems he's just given that name um, on account of him coming out in the way that he does. And then the brother is, his other brother is placed ahead of him. And as we look in the story of the deception of Isaac, there's a similar event, the darkness, the struggle with two brothers, the question of who's going to come out first. And then in that context, Rebecca talks about being, um, bereaved of her children in in a day um, or something along those lines, but in a way that refers um, particularly to miscarrying. Um, later on, we have the struggle at the 
um, Ford of the Jabbok, where again, there's the mix up of Jacob's name in the Jabbok. He is questioning, can he have the blessing? He's struggling to be blessed in order to come out of the darkness into the light through the passage through the waters. And that struggle is one that leads to him being given a new name, being given the blessing. And then in the next chapter, when he meets up with Esau, he says he can, Esau can go on ahead. Esau is, he's not trying to get ahead of Esau in order to receive the blessing anymore. Rather, Esau can go ahead and instead of him, he's not going to fight in the same way as he once did um, against his brother, because he's been given the blessing in this new event of birth from the true source of it. And he actually performs the blessing to his brother by bowing down to him and giving him all the gifts. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And one of the things that's going on there, it seems, is a, a kind of unfolding of the significance of Jacob's name. You have the connections that are there from the birth story, but then you have these other episodes where there are plays on the name that become part of his identity. Um, as you mentioned, the, the Jabbok and Yaakov are punning on each other, the place where he wrestles with God and his name. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very interesting, uh, uh, interesting take on Jacob's life. Well, I think one of, the, one of the things I think I want to draw from this in gen general, we're doing a kind of Advent Christmas series, and I think our, uh, we, we lose the richness and depth and the complexity of the Christmas story if we just think about it as an isolated event of a miracle birth of a small child who's going to be the savior of the world. When we look at that, that birth in the light of these Old Testament types, then all these other factors come into play. The, the struggle between brothers is part of the Christmas, uh, part of the Christmas scenario, part of the Advent scenario. Uh, uh, and we, we, that's highlighted for us when we look at Jesus' birth as a, a birth of the new Israel, or as a birth of a new Jacob. Uh, and uh, then we can see these other dynamics at play. Um, so that uh, it's a, a, you know, kind of combats some of the sentimentality that we get around Christmas when we look at uh, look at the coming of Christ in the light of these Old Testament events. Yeah, a, a question on that. I mean, um, I'm thinking now about the life of Jesus, and obviously his birth is accompanied by miraculous events and prophecies and so forth, but. At the same time, it's not clear how widely they were known to the people to whom Jesus was interacting. And it's actually said particularly of Mary that she kept those things in her heart and pondered them as if to suggest that in other people's cases, those things were just forgotten about fairly quickly. And I'm just wondering in terms of this story in verse 23, as I think Jeff pointed out, it's specifically the woman, Rebecca, to whom these uh, uh, this prophecy is revealed that two nations are in your womb and the one shall be stronger than, than the other. Um, how well known do you think this was? I mean, it's Rebecca who acts on this, this right? I mean, did, did Isaac know um, uh, about this prophecy or did he just forget it quite quickly? I'm, I'm intrigued to know to, to what extent you think this was a, a, a secretive thing, like, for instance, when... Saul is told um, that he's going to inherit the kingdom, but, but doesn't tell anyone about it. The fact that it doesn't say they went to inquire of the Lord, I think, is interesting here, because if it were something that they had together as a question and then um, they inquired and it was a message that they both received, that's 
probably what we would expect. Um, I think on the more general point, it's interesting that we have so many of the great events of deliverance in history prefigured by um, events in the wombs of women. So we have the beginning of the story of the Exodus or the beginning of the story of the kingdom or the beginning of the story of the gospel, beginning with things that ha happen in very private, out-of-the-way places. And it's very much about the Lord's revelation to just individuals who are detached from um, the wider life of the nation in many ways, but they're women um, with these personal crises which open up into the whole destiny of the, the people as a whole. And here, I think, is just one other example of this. What takes place in the secret place can be the most important event on the whole stage of history at the time, but it's taking place in the wings. And often we focus upon what's taking place, for instance, in the palace of Herod in Jerusalem, and don't notice that the really important thing is taking place in what's hidden in the heart of a young woman. I can't help but thinking also, in light of what Elster just said, of Jesus' first miracle, where his mother basically is the one who uh, kind of orchestrates things. I mean, it's like what happens in Genesis 27 when Isaac is old and dim. And, you, and James asks this question about Isaac, w whether he knew about the promise or not, the uh, prophecy from the Lord in Genesis 25, and it seems like he's surely failed here, but Rebecca is the one behind the scenes who's making sure that the promise happens. And so, in similar way, Mary, um, and I'm thinking of that, I think it's John 2 in Cana, where she does something very significant behind the scenes, but it's the first time when Jesus reveals his glory. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>